Welcome to CTSNet to Go, bringing your discussions about the most relevant topics in cardiothoracic surgery. The Cardiothoracic Surgery Network, known as CTSNet, aims to connect the global cardiothoracic surgical community through communication, collaboration, education, and interaction among cardiothoracic surgeons and their teams across the globe. Learn more at ctsnet.org. My name is Shanda Blackman, and I'm just one of the hosts of CTS Net to Go. We hope you enjoy. Good morning, and welcome to the EACTS conference in Amsterdam. Welcome to this series of, of Giants interviews. I'm here with Professor Stephen Westerby. Good morning. Good morning. Nice to be here. To talk about his ex outstanding career and uh, his many, many achievements over the years. I think he needs very little introduction, so I think we'll go straight into the interview. Thank you. Well, Thank you it, for joining us. If there's, if there's any point in doing an interview like this, it, it, it's to try and help uh, inspire young people. Uh, I began uh, with very humble beginnings in the back street uh, of a nor northern steel town. And I got to the age of seven uh, in 1955, and saw in a little black and white television uh, set that my parents got for the first time, Your Life in Their Hands. And they were talking about John Gibbon and the Heart Lung Machine. And Dennis Melrose at the Hammersmith and Hugh Bentall were starting to try to do cardiac surgery. And I, as a backstreet boy, I was very taken by this. Uh, and I said to myself at the age of seven, uh, I'm going to be a heart surgeon. Uh, not a proper doctor. Uh, uh, I was single-minded throughout. Um, and uh, up in uh, Scunthorpe, I worked in the steelworks. I worked as a, a porter in the operating theatres. Uh, I used to go to the mortuaries to watch the autopsies. And I eventually got to medical school in 1966 in London at the old Charing Cross Hospital which was absolutely fabulous, on the Strand, next to the theatres with the Savoy across the road, Covent Garden, and it was wonderful. But the first thing I did was to find out in the medical school, did they do heart surgery? And they used to do heart surgery once a week, uh, and medical students weren't allowed across there, but I found out where it was, and I went up to an old ether dome in the uh, eaves, under the eaves of the old Charing Cross Hospital. Dark and dusty place, but I could look down directly over the operating theater and watch the surgeons trying to do heart surgery. Uh, and they were using massive old rotating disc oxygenators spinning in pools of blood. Uh, and I used to sit and watch the whole thing and every week on a Wednesday, the patient died. And I saw some terrible things in the ether dome because they, they were trying to treat young people with rheumatic disease. Uh, and one after another, they died. Um, I was a waster at medical school. I was captain of cricket and I was captain of rugby and I was the social secretary. Uh, but being a, a notable waster, at the end of my medical school career, I got a national scholarship to go to New York to the Albert Einstein Hospital in New York. Um, and so uh, the boy from the back streets set off on an airplane from the first time, 
touched down in New York City at Kennedy Airport uh, and went up to the Bronx. And uh, I had a fascinating time there. And guess what I did? Cardiac surgery. And there I, I started to see people survive cardiac surgery. And I, I learned a lot about it. And I, I came back uh, absolutely fixated on being a cardiac surgeon. Now, I then had a lot of luck. I was made the houseman to the famous professor of medicine at Charing Cross, Hugh de Wardner, mm -hmm. who began renal dialysis. And then to the professor of surgery, Harding Rains, who always took the rugby captains. And life was like that in those days. And uh, we used to work round the clock. Uh, I did the primary fellowship very quickly, failed it first time, uh, got it the second time, went to the Brompton. And when I, I got to the Brompton, uh, for, for me, this was the epitome. Uh, Oswald Tobbs, who began mitral valvotomy, was still there. I worked for Christopher Lincoln, who was beginning pediatric cardiac surgery, and Matt Panath. Matt uh, Panath was a six-foot-six German, uh, very intimidating, and... Um, a very interesting character. And I, I worked very hard for these guys. I lived in the hospital. Uh, I worked day and night as we used to in those days. But unlike today, they used to give us dinner in the boardroom in the evenings with wine. Uh, quite extraordinary. And when I started to go to the operating theatre, I found in a dusty old cupboard Lord Brock's discarded white operating boots. Down the back it said Brock. Uh, so I purloined Lord Brock's boots and paraded myself around uh, the operating theatre at the Brompton. Now, I sat in the outpatients one morning with Panath and he said, Westerby, it's about time you went and opened a chest. And I'd never done any surgery at that point. I'd not even uh, been a house officer in an A&E department. But I, uh, me being me, I said, fine. Off I go. Uh, and I went to the theatre and the, the nurses were eager to get started and the patient was prepared and draped. And I knew it was a little old lady for a mitral valve replacement. What I didn't know was that she'd had a closed mitral valvotomy and had had, she had adhesions. And they'd opened the pericardium behind the sternum. So the first time I used a sternal saw, it went into the right ventricle. Uh, <laughs> And the nurses panicked a little bit because I, they knew I was green as grass and sent for Mr. Panath. Now, all I could do was to try and stop the bleeding. So I, I got that sternum open and put my fist in and said, give me a stitch. And I just stitched up the right ventricle. And wow. By the time Panath appeared at the door of the operating theatre, he walked in wearing his suit and he said, Westerby, what have you done? And I said, I've had, had a slight accident uh, with the right ventricle, Mr. Panath but it seems to be all right right now. So he, he walked off and had coffee, and I dissolved in a, a heap of perspiration on the floor, but it was okay. That got me started. I was then very lucky to uh, go to Cambridge for my general surgical training. And I started in Cambridge on the rotation there at Papworth with Terence English as he was 
starting to get to grips with cardiac transplantation. Uh, so I, I continued to develop in cardiac surgery, did more and more, and went to Addenbrooke's then with Roy Kahn, who was beginning liver transplantation. And it was a very, very, very exciting time. Um, uh, the thing about Cambridge was that the senior registrars at the time used to do transplantation uh, and were on that rotor. And the younger guys, like myself, did the emergency general surgery. So alternate nights, I operated. And I operated, and I operated, and I operated. And I did abdominal aortic aneurysms as a registrar, hemihepatectomies, panproctocolectomies. They were prepared to let you do what you could do. Uh, and for me, that was a very important thing because I, I think beginning cardiac surgery without being an accomplished operator mm. is extremely difficult. Yeah. So uh, that, that was a very good experience. I uh, got the fellowship of the College of Surgeons the second time. I failed it the first time. The reason I passed the second time was I was still a rugby player and I fractured my jaw playing rugby uh, one Saturday afternoon. Roy Kahn used to love me to play rugby because I got my name in the newspapers. Um, but having fractured my jaw, I came in and sat in A&E, waiting to be seen by an orthodontic surgeon. Uh, and as I sat waiting, they brought in a student that had come off a motorcycle right in front of the hospital gates with a transected aorta. And Papworth was miles away, and there was no one to intervene with a ruptured aorta. So I actually was called through to see if I could do anything in my rugby kit with a fractured jaw covered in mud, and I did a thoracotomy in that state. Mm. And the guy did not survive, I have to say. But as I did that, the orthodontic surgeon arrived and said, where's Westerby? And they, say, he, they said, he's in the emergency room with the chest open. And the orthodontic surgeon thought it was me. I'd inhaled a tooth and I'd had a cardiac arrest. Uh, and when I saw him, he looked white as a sheet because I was covered in blood and uh, still wearing the rugby gear. So that formative years, formative years. After which, I went to the Hammersmith. Having seen the Hammersmith on your life in their hands, I found myself at the Hammersmith as a registrar uh, with Professor Bentall, Melrose, uh, and the team, uh, and I just took off. And because I could operate again in those days, they would let you operate. Um, so in, within nine months, I went from registrar to senior registrar. Uh, and I said to um, uh, Professor Bentall, I need to train in America. Everybody goes to America to train. And I said, I've seen heart transplantation in Cambridge. I want to go to Dr. Shumway in California. And I remember Bentall said to me, uh, Westerby, you're completely undisciplined as you are. If you go to Shumway, you'll end up even worse, a total wreck, you've got to go to Kirkland. If you go to Kirkland in Alabama, uh, we'll take you back. 
uh, with, with the prospects of being a consultant. Uh, so off I went to Alabama, uh, which was the best, one of the best things I ever did. Um, got into the American culture, doing rounds at 5 a.m., starting to operate at 7, uh, working through in the research lab till uh, very, very late at night, but then going out. And in Alabama, it was still hot and steamy, so you could drop into a swimming pool at 11 and then start all over again. Now, the great Eugene Blackstone was with Kirkland, uh, as indeed was the great pediatric cardiac surgeon Pacifico, Nick Chukas on aortic surgery. Uh, so, again, I operated, 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 but my research project was on the damaging effects of cardiopulmonary bypass. And we uh, found a new assay at the Scripps Institute in California for measuring complement and aflatoxins. I did that with blood from the patients in the operating room, and we showed that cardiopulmonary bypass activated complement, and that was the root cause of the post-perfusion syndrome. Uh, that was a great discovery. I also used to break down oxygenators uh, and test the individual materials in the oxygenator to see which material really activated complement. And it was nylon. Uh, and having identified that, Bentley, who made most of the oxygenators in those days, took nylon out and it completely transformed um, the damaging effects of cardiopulmonary bypass. So that was a good start. Good start for the career. When I came back to uh, the Hammersmith, we started to look for ways to attenuate the damaging effects of cardiopulmonary bypass. And Charles Vildefer, who I consulted in Groningen, uh, told me that a protonin was an anti-inflammatory agent. And that's how we started putting a protonin in the heart-lung machine and just noticed serendipitously that it attenuated bleeding. One other thing happened in 81 when I was with Kirkland. Dr. Cooley implanted a total artificial heart. Uh, and it was in the news, it was in Life magazine, and so on and so forth. And soon afterwards, I... Uh, said to Dr. Kirkland on a Friday evening, I, I want to go to Houston and meet Dr. Cooley. Uh, and what Dr. Kirkland said to me isn't repeatable, but I went anyway. Uh, and I went to the, I flew overnight from Birmingham in Alabama to Houston and found myself in, in the fantastic medical center in Houston, found the Texas Heart Institute, uh, sat on a chair in the middle of the night and waited for Dr. Cooley to arrive in the morning. Uh, and he, I saw him uh, because I recognized his picture and I said, uh, Dr. Cooley, I'm a young English surgeon from the Brompton. I work with Oswald Tubbs. I know you did. Uh, I would like to see your artificial heart. And uh, Cooley took me to his office. He gave me tea, showed me the artificial heart, showed me around the Texas Heart Institute. Um, and then I had a career-long association with him. Um, but the very same weekend, uh, I went up the road and met Michael DeBakey too. 
and, and that was pivotal, formative. And um, the next step was back in England. I went to Harefield Hospital when it was rife with transplantation and I didn't enjoy it at all. There were 300 transplants a year virtually at, at Harefield. Um, and the logistics of flying around in the middle of the night and organizing these transplants, looking after them, it was not something that I, I particularly enjoyed. So I, I started to get more and more interested in artificial hearts. One other thing I did as a thoracic surgical registrar there, I, we had a patient flown in from Saudi Arabia with severe burns to his windpipe. Okay. And uh, I designed a, a tracheal and bronchial stent for him, never believing it would work, but it did. And the bosses let me implant it and it became known as the Westerby tube, even in America. So another pivotal moment. I should let you get a word in edgeways. Um, yeah, it's fascinating to hear everything and to such an amazing experience that you've had over so many years and from so many different arenas as well, bringing in the, the States back to the mm. UK. Moving maybe on to some of your work in the UK and talking about artificial hearts, mm. maybe you could tell us about what happened in 2000 and your first implantation. Yeah, I, I, I went to Oxford as, as a consultant, as most people know. And there was nothing in Oxford. Uh, so I had to start from scratch. And, and I imported uh, surgical care assistance uh, and started that program. And I, I had no intensive care beds, so we had to start fast track. And between going to Oxford and 10 years later, we went from less than 100 cases a year to 1,600 with some good colleagues. And I started pediatric cardiac surgery as well. Uh, so we, we, we developed a very exciting program, but I wanted something extra. And uh, I serendipitously in 1995 went to the STS meeting in San Antonio and was asked by a company to look at something that the famous artificial heart engineer, Rob Jarvik, had designed. And um, it was a product per, for perfusing the leg, as a matter of fact. But when that was finished with and everybody had gone away, Rob Jarvik said to me, uh, come up to my hotel room, I've got something interesting to show you. Now, from another man, that's always a little bit worrying, but. I went up to his room and he opened a briefcase and showed me a thumb-sized titanium pump. And inside that was an impeller that, that spins around at 12,000 RPM. Uh, and he put it in a bowl of water and it pumped magnificently. Uh, and I remember saying to him, that's a great pump for water, but it'll hemolyze blood. It's like an egg whisk. I thought, this, this is inconceivable. But I told him I'd, I'd like to work with him actually pretending that I'd got a, an animal lab and great facilities in Oxford. We, we had nothing. Uh, and he said, yeah, the only other person working with it is Bud Frazier in, in, at the Texas Heart. And I said, that's great. Um, and Jarvik said, Bud is here in San Antonio. Would you like to meet him? I met Bud 
I went back to Houston the following day to see the calves with the Jarvik 2000. And then I took off back to Oxford and frenetically tried to raise two million to set up a, an animal facility mm -hmm. in my hospital. And we succeeded with that. Uh, Frankie Vaughan, the, the, the singer, I'd operated on him twice. And he uh, got the variety club to provide charitable money. And, and we set up a program and Jarvik used to come across and we implanted the Jarvik 2000 in, in around 30 sheep. And one of, the, one of the most important things there was we demonstrated that large mammals did not need pulse pressure in the circulation. So you could have miniaturized pumps. Uh, at the time, most people believed you needed the big empty and fill, mm -hmm. replicate the native left ventricle pumps. Um, and it was that, uh, I think, single point that we demonstrated that organ function was not disturbed by just having continuous flow that allowed the miniaturization uh, and the emergence of uh, Thoratex uh, pump, uh, heart heartware's pump, and, and, and so on. Uh, while I was doing the laboratory work, the Houston team decided that the large heartmate pulsatile device was suitable for permanent treatment for destination therapy. This was the new concept. Uh, but they couldn't implant it in the States. So Bud Frazier asked me whether I could start a program in Oxford. Uh, and we did, again with charitable money. And we did quite well with the pulsatile pumps. And what we recognized in the patients with dilated cardiomyopathy was that their own hearts started to get better. So we got a clue to the so-called bridge to recovery phenomenon. Uh, and that was very exciting. And, and then Richard Clark, the chief of cardiac surgery from NIH, came to work with me for a year in Oxford and brought a pump called the Tandem Heart. It was the AB180 in those days. They'd tried it three times in Pittsburgh without a survivor. And within two weeks of him arriving, a 20-year-old student came in with severe viral myocarditis. Uh, and cut a long story short, I implanted the tandem heart in the middle of the night and bridged it to recovery. So that was actually the UK's first That's bridge to recovery in viral myocarditis in, in 1996. Now, when I came out the operating theater in the morning, having done that, uh, the girl was in reasonable condition uh, and we were all very pleased but the hospital medical director wasn't very pleased uh, and sent for me and said if you ever do anything like that again with a non-regulated device um, uh, we'll sack you. Two weeks later in the pediatric intensive care unit was a young lad who uh, the pediatric cardiologist thought had the same the AB180 was too big. So I called my good old friend Roland Hetzer in Berlin and said, Roland, I hear you've got an external pulsatile pump that you can use for children. And he flew a Berlin heart across to Oxford uh, with one of the technicians and a surgeon. And again in the middle of the night, we implanted a Berlin heart into the young boy 
um, irrespective of the threats to sack me because I wasn't going to have any of that. And we saved the boy as well. He was dying of cardiogenic shock. But I biopsied his heart and it wasn't myocarditis. It was uh, burnt out idiopathic dilated cardiomyopathy at the age of 12. So we transplanted him in Oxford, the one and only transplant in Oxford. As you can see, I was very bad. As, as Bentall had said many years before, I was completely undisciplined. But you needed to be that way to push cardiac surgery forward. And that was a very exciting time. And in 2000, having collected enough data to justify using a continuous flow pump for the first time. Uh, we did a bridge to transplant in Houston. Uh, Dr. Cooley and myself, Bud Frazier, Rob Jarvik, uh, that was uh, the epic first implant of a continuous flow pump. And they said, we can't do destination therapy. You do it in Oxford. So a, a few weeks later, we did the famous Peter Houghton operation uh, with the Jarvik 2000, and Peter survived for seven and a half years. And he, he became the poster boy for destination therapy. Uh, again, very exciting. With his heart, artificial heart, he used to travel to the States, uh, talk to the FDA, and persuaded them uh, that continuous flow devices were were reasonable, but he was the proof of the pudding. So we, we had a great start with mechanical circulatory support and then the charitable money ran out. Yeah. Uh, we had some notable successes with the Levitronics uh, system, very, very good system, uh, extraordinary patients. One, one patient uh, who was a soldier came up from the south of England um, with a history of hypertension, but in cardiogenic shock, dying on a balloon pump. And I tried to work out if that was his only history, what could be going on, hypertension, heart failure, uh, penny dropped pheochromocytoma. So we took him from a seeking helicopter directly to the CT scanner. He had a pheo. So I put him on cardiopulmonary bypass straight away because he, he, he was about to die. Uh, and we took out the FIO on bypass, and we couldn't get him off bypass, which I knew when I started, so we put a Levitronics in him and bridged him to recovery over a week. Uh, so that was an, an, another rare condition that we could show would, would recover early with mechanical support. But when the, when the money did run out... Um, I kept getting sent patients, uh, a lot of them very young, and they just died. And we tried to get ECMO in, in time, from various other hospitals and so on and so forth, but then we started having uh, a lot of deaths. And I, I feel very, very strongly that every cardiac center should have the ability to rescue. You simply cannot do cardiac surgery without having the equipment to tide patients over for a few days or a couple of weeks or even a couple of months. Uh, and I think that's very uh, bad in the UK that all hospitals can't have rescue equipment. We, we lose a lot of patients unnecessarily. So I guess the, the, the last pivotal moment 
in 2005 when Peter Houghton was in his heyday and everybody knew about him and his artificial heart, um, uh, the Prime Minister at the time gave us a reception in Downing Street. Uh, and Peter said then, look, you can't use these pumps in the UK because of the expense. You better put together a company in the UK to make an artificial heart. And actually, that's precisely what we did. And Oxford had no interest whatever, so uh, they were only interested in molecules. Um, they even closed down our large animal lab uh, for more space for rats, which, which was regrettable. So I, we set up a small uh, bioengineering department in the University of Swansea, which emerged into Calon Cardiotechnology, and we now have a really splendid... Uh, British left ventricular assist device, which uh, I think is beginning to attract attention. Uh, thanks to a motor car engineer uh, by the name of uh, Graham Foster uh, and uh, the, the, uh, my colleague uh, in Swansea who runs the Institute of Life Sciences by the name of Mark Clement, we, we put the company together and it's made good progress. And that's very exciting now. That kind of brings me to where we are now and what I'm interested in doing in the last couple of years of career one has when you get to your mid-60s. I think what a lot of people understand now is, is I'm, I'm dedicated to showing that destination therapy is not just there as an alternative to cardiac transplantation, it's there as an alternative to palliative care for patients with severe heart failure. In the UK and many, many other countries that do not have affluent healthcare systems, if you have severe heart failure and you're over 60, you get palliative care and an early death. In the States right now, patients in their 80s and 90s are getting VADs with much better quality of life uh, and added life years. And I think that's where the VAD story is going. Not as an alternative to transplantation, but as an alternative to a miserable death. So I hope we're going to achieve something there. And, and of course, the last thing is uh, we, we've got to make cardiac surgery a much happier uh, profession than it is right now. Um, I think the scrutiny on cardiac surgeons uh, and the focus on outcomes instead of innovation uh, is damaging in a way. Uh, my whole career uh, was about innovation and that's what made it an exciting career. If your career in cardiac surgery is focused on getting the best outcomes at the expense of operating on the sickest patients, that, that is never going to be an exciting career. Um, so uh, I, I think that's something that needs d discussing in a, in a wider field and, and probably in the UK revising. Uh, so life will be uh, a lot more tolerable for people like yourself. Absolutely. Uh, well, I mean, there's really not much more I can say. We've heard about so many uh, innovations that you've 
contributed to over the years, so many things that a lot of people won't even know that you were fundamental in changing our day-to-day -day clinical practice. So thank you for everything mm -hmm. that you've put in throughout your career and for changing the specialty as it oh, is today. Cardiac surgery is wonderful. Uh, cardiac surgery transforms lives in everything from premature babies to the very elderly. Uh, so let's try and enjoy it a lot more and be less stressed uh, and keep the patients in mind uh, and, uh, and not, not start worrying about ourselves. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to CTS Net to Go, your resource for podcasts focusing on cardiothoracic surgery. Find more discussions as well as surgical videos and other cardiothoracic surgery resources at ctsnet.org. You can also keep up with CTSNet by subscribing to the YouTube channel at CTSNet Video, by following at CTSNet.org on Twitter, or by liking CTSNet's page on Facebook. I'm Shanda Blackman. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of CTSNet to Go. Have a great day.